Uh, this question arises frequently because Jehovah's Witnesses claim to be his servants and uh, they say that uh, they are led by God and so people say, well, how can you say that when you don't have a divine revelation and we do not have the so-called charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, healing, uh, and other things that would indicate a supernatural power. And our explanation to this is that uh, Christ Jesus in Matthew uh, 24, uh, 45 to 47, uh, gave a prophecy concerning uh, the faithful and discreet slave. We might look up here in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 45, Jesus said, Who really is the faithful and discreet slave whom his master appointed over his domestics to give them their food at the proper time? Happy is that slave if his master on arriving finds him doing so. Truly I say to you, he will appoint him over all his belongings. So Jesus here was giving an indication as to how his servants on the earth would be spiritually fed and directed at the conclusion of the system of things. So we explain that this faithful and discreet slave class, which uh, consists of the number of anointed ones on the earth at any given time, from the time of Christ Jesus down to today, and that uh, their understanding of food at the proper time is usually based on research, uh, of the scriptures, applying the scriptures in their lives, uh, observing prophecy and course of fulfillment, and uh, in that way endeavoring to do God's will, and in that way they're led by Holy Spirit. But there are those, some who have left us, and maybe even some who will become weak and, and maybe disappointed in certain developments, uh, they'll say, well, if this organization was directed by God, then uh, it would always have a clear understanding as to what his will was. There'd be no human error and no necessity of making changes. And yet Jehovah's Witnesses are known for, from time to time, changing their understanding of a certain prophecy or doctrine and making adjustments in their viewpoint. So, the answer to these questions and objections that some raise can be found by looking into the Bible and observing how Jehovah has directed his people in the past. We're going to find that although there were periods of divine inspiration or angelic revelation, miraculous transfer of information from the heavens to the earth, the basic principles of divine direction have not changed throughout the centuries. Now, in pre-Christian era, Jehovah God led his servants. For example, Abraham, he was uh, directed by God. In Genesis chapter 18, the angel of Jehovah made this statement concerning Abraham, that's chapter 18 of Genesis, and uh, we'll uh, read here verse 18 and 19, where the angel said, Abraham is surely going to become a nation great and mighty. And all the nations of the earth must bless themselves by means of him, for I have become acquainted with him in order that he may command his sons and his household after him, so that they shall keep Jehovah's way to do righteousness and judgment, in order that Jehovah may certainly bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So Jehovah had selected Abraham, and he says here, given him, made, uh, become acquainted with him, in order that his household could do righteousness and judgment. 
And yet, Abraham probably received angelic direction no more than about nine times in a hundred years. So we shouldn't get the idea that Abraham was receiving a revelation every other day or week or month and told exactly what to do. He received, uh, uh, probably from his birth and childhood, uh, through his father, and uh, being of the line of Shem, an understanding of God's purposes and basic principles, and then there were, as I said, nine angelic revelations to Abraham from uh, uh, about a period of a hundred years. So what Abraham had to do is to take the information that he had received concerning uh, Jehovah's purposes and then apply it, and apply it in a lot of other situations. Now, the nation of Israel received the law by angelic revelation. There were the Ten Commandments. There were about 600 and some other laws and regulations. And, and to these, there were certain judicial decisions that Jehovah made through the centuries. But in the course of 15 centuries, there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of situations and so these specific commandments, the Ten Commandments and the Six Hundred and other laws, would not begin to cover all the situations that the nation of Israel or the people of Israel individually would face. So they had to take these laws into their hearts and then apply them in a practical way to the situations that they faced. Now from time to time, because they failed to carry out what Jehovah had said, Jehovah raised up prophets. And these prophets served three purposes to uh, keep the people uh, near uh, to Jehovah, to care for an immediate need, to warn them against immorality and idolatry, to strengthen their hope in the future, and to help them to keep their proper place uh, in events that were taking place around them. However, in about a thousand years, Jehovah raised up some 40 prophets to give them written direction. Uh, apart from that, there were the schools of the prophets from time to time that gave oral direction. But it's very clear, as has been mentioned in the Watchtower on occasion, that divine miracles really occurred generally in the days, in, in, in ancient history, in the days of Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. Most of Jehovah's servants never saw a divine miracle. They never saw evidence of angelic revelation. They had to depend on Jehovah's uh, communicating to them through his written word. So today when people say to us, well, the Bible, that's just written by men, that's true. And uh, the Ten Commandments were written by Jehovah, but the rest of the law of Moses were written down by human Moses, and uh, nevertheless people had to accept that as Jehovah's direction. Now sometimes, in addition to what Jehovah had written down, in his dealings with them, he established certain principles which uh, gave them insight as to his view of matters. David and other writers of the Psalms, for example, had various experiences, and they saw how Jehovah dealt with them, or how he dealt with other men of faith, and they saw how Jehovah dealt with uh, men without faith. And then they recorded their observations under divine inspiration in the Psalms. And a couple of other incidents. When King Saul excused his failure to follow God's commandments because he, he wanted to, to make sacrifices, Jehovah said through Samuel, obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, that principle became a part of true worship, though it wasn't a part of the Ten Commandments or a part of the 600 laws there. 
And later, when the Israelites were making all sorts of sacrifices and ceremonies, but failing to show mercy, Jehovah said through Hosea, I want mercy and not sacrifice. And that also was a very vital principle. So the idea was to be alert to Jehovah's way of doing things and then applying it in their lives. Now the Christian congregation also received divine guidance through Christ Jesus. But again, they didn't receive instruction on everything that they had to do in their daily life. They had to apply the counsel that they received. During Jesus' ministry, his entire teaching and, and way of doing things constituted revelations uh, as he taught his followers about his Father. In uh, John chapter 1, uh, reading from verse 16, uh, John writes concerning Christ Jesus, uh, We all received from out of his fullness even undeserved kindness upon undeserved kindness, because the law was given through Moses. The undeserved kindness and the truth came to be through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom position the Father is the one that is explained to Now Jesus explained the Father not only in the words he used, but in the manner with which he dealt with his disciples. He reflected Jehovah's characteristics. So they had to be a servant. They had to pay attention to not only what he said, but how he said it and how he dealt with them if they were going to get insight into Jehovah's way of thinking. And the essentials of Jesus' teaching are found in the four gospel accounts. On Pentecost, Jesus poured out Holy Spirit on uh, the hundred and the twelve, uh, the eleven apostles actually, and then the hundred and twenty, and uh, several thousand also received Holy Spirit on that day. And if we look up Acts chapter two, we'll find that by means of Holy Spirit, Peter was able to give an inspired interpretation of such prophecies as Joel two twenty-eight through thirty-two about Jehovah pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh and everyone prophesying, sons and daughters, old and young, men and women. And then Psalm 16, 9, where uh, David says that you will not leave my soul in Hades, or Sheol, and uh, concerning Jesus' resurrection. And uh, then Psalm 110, uh, as um, uh, Jesus, uh, as Peter rather pointed out in Acts 2, 34, where David uh, did not ascend to heaven, but he himself says, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies as a stool for your feet. Now with divine help, Peter could say, let all of the house of Israel know for a certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have saved. So yes, Holy Spirit was involved in Peter's uh, divine uh, or infallible interpretation of some of these prophecies. But the apostles also had to observe what was taking place around them and what was happening to them, and then draw on their knowledge of the scriptures to see how they, uh, these things fitted into the prophetic events. So we can turn to Acts chapter 4, and here we remember that uh, Jesus uh, had uh, told the apostles that they had to preach his resurrection in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And yet when they tried to preach, even in Jerusalem, they were stopped by the religious leaders and threatened with loss of their freedom and loss of their lives. So chapter 4 tells about what happened here, that they were threatened because uh, they were told to stop preaching. And in Acts 4.19, Peter said, 
And John said, whether it's righteous in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, judge for yourself. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking about the things we've seen and heard. So uh, then they threatened them, and they were going to punish them, but then they uh, allowed them uh, to uh, go. Now what did they do? Well, we read on here in Acts, they went back to where the disciples were gathered together, explaining what had happened, and then they prayed. Now notice what they got into with this prayer. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all the things in them, and who through Holy Spirit said by the mouth of our forefather David, your servant, now notice here now, in their prayer they come into the second psalm. And they now see how Psalm 2 had its application in what had taken place with Jesus and what was taking place with them. Why did nations become tumultuous and peoples meditate upon empty things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers massed together as one against Jehovah and against his anointed one. Now they quote there from Psalm 2, and then they say, Even so, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with men of nations and with people of Israel, were in actuality gathered together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, in order to do what things your hand and counsel had foreordained to occur. Now they understood their situation. They understood why they were persecuted and threatened. What did they pray? For Jehovah to remove persecution? Verse uh, 29. And now Jehovah... Give attention to their threats, and grant your slaves to keep speaking your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing and while signs and portents occur through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now, notice here, they saw that, that the nations and Israel had actually conspired against Jehovah and his anointed, and yet Jehovah said there was a message that should be proclaimed to them, so they prayed for strength to do it. In verse uh, 31 says, when they had made supplication, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were, one and all, filled with the Holy Spirit, and were speaking the word of God with boldness. So here, by looking to God's word, they saw the point, and Holy Spirit helped uh, affirm these things. Now, special intervention or revelation from the heavens was also needed to activate the apostles for preaching to the people of the nations. Now, it's true, the prophecies in uh, uh, Deuteronomy and in the Psalms and Isaiah had told about Jehovah's name being proclaimed among the nations and about people being glad with his people. But uh, the Jews generally uh, did not proselytize, although some of the Pharisees did some of that. But generally, the Jews didn't feel they should even come together with Gentiles or people of the nations. Now, in Matthew 28:19, Jesus told his apostles to go and make disciples of people of all nations. And similarly, in Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus uh, used these words in verse uh, 46, where he said, in this way, it was written that the Christ would suffer and rise from among the dead on the third day. And on the basis of his name, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be preached in all the nations, starting out from Jerusalem. And now what did Jesus add? You are to be witnesses of these things. So, uh, Jesus had commanded them to do that, to also witness to the nations. And uh, then he said in Acts 1.8, when they asked him about the establishment of the kingdom, he says, you will be witnesses of me 
throughout Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But still, they didn't really go out to the Nashat point. They had uh, gone to uh, the Samaritans, who were circumcised people and who had believed in the Pentateuch. But then God prepared Peter, so it took divine intervention. The account of this is in Acts chapter 10, where Peter had fallen asleep up on the roof of the house there in Joppa, and then he had this dream where he saw this huge sheet being lowered with all sorts of unclean animals and birds in it, and then he was told to kill and eat. And then Peter said, no, I've never eaten an unclean thing. And then the angel said, what God has made clean, don't you call unclean. Well, in the meantime, what has been happening is, uh, up in Caesarea, this Italian army officer, Cornelius, and his family had been coming to God and praying to God for direction. And so the first thing that Jehovah did in answering Cornelius' prayer was to put him in touch with a member of Jehovah's visible congregation, namely telling him to send men to Peter and ask Peter to come and visit him in his household. So here was a direction from God. It took initiative on that And then when Peter came in there and started speaking, Jehovah also, or through Christ Jesus, confirmed the rightfulness of Peter being there by pouring out Holy Spirit upon Cornelius and his friends there before they even got baptized. Now that's an unusual order of events. But Peter says, can we forbid water to these who have received the free gift of the Holy Spirit, even as we ourselves have? which indicated Peter normally would not have baptized uncircumcised people. But he did because he saw God's clear direction. Later, uh, in the, well, about this same time that this was happening, uh, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, had uh, come to Damascus to persecute the Christians. And uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, tells us about this event where uh, Ananias had said to Jehovah that this man persecutes your servants. And then uh, Christ Jesus said in uh, Acts 9 there, that this man is to bear my name to the nations as well as to the kings and to the sons of Israel. But the apostles also needed themselves to search Holy Scripture and to get further support for that. In the city in Antioch, Uh, we look up Acts chapter 13, we find an interesting account here where the apostles in their witnessing up there in uh, uh, Asia Minor generally witnessed first to the Jews because uh, they would be more responsive to the kingdom message. And uh, yet, uh, we notice here in Acts chapter 13 and uh, verse uh, 45 that the Jews rejected them. Now, all the city had gathered to hear the word of Jehovah, but verse 45 of Acts 13 says, When the Jews got sight of the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began blasphemously contradicting the things being spoken of by Paul. And so, talking with boldness, Paul and Barnabas said to them, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken first to you, since you are thrusting it away from you and do not judge yourselves worthy of everlasting life. Look, we turn to the nation. Uh, did he say, because the angel told me? No, they quoted from Isaiah here, uh, chapter 48, and uh, it says here, uh, In fact, Jehovah has laid commandment upon us in these words, I have appointed you as a light of nations for you to be a salvation to the extremity of the earth. 
So here we see that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul quoted from Isaiah 49, 6 as authority to preach to the nations. Now Isaiah, in this case, wasn't really talking about Paul preaching to the nations, but it did mention the light of God's word coming out beyond the borders of Israel. And this was an example as to how a member of the governing body and the faithful and discreet slave of the first century applied scripture. Comes an example for us today. In Romans chapter 15, just to give you an idea, you might think the Apostle Paul sat down and just wrote the whole thing from inspiration. The letter was inspired, but in his letter, Paul used prophetic support for his preaching to the nations. He refers to Psalm 1849, then Deuteronomy 32:43, then Psalm 117:1, and Isaiah 11:10. So what do we get out of this? They didn't just sit there and wait for the Spirit to move them or, or some angel to come and tell them. They searched the Scripture and applied it in a given situation. Now, the problem came up as others of the nations, the uncircumcised, were coming in uh, as to whether or not you really had to be circumcised or not. There were those Judaizers among them, Acts chapter 15 tells us about that, who were saying that if, if you really want to get saved, you've got to be circumcised. Well now, how do they decide on that? Well, they had some uh, debate, chapter 15 says in verse 2, when there had occurred no little dissension and disputing by Paul and Barnabas with them, they arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others of them to go up to the apostles and other men, older men in Jerusalem regarding this dispute. Well, we could ask, why didn't uh, the Holy Spirit just uh, inspire Paul to say, or why didn't an angel uh, appear and say, well, Paul and Barnabas are correct on this matter? No, uh, the decision was made to go up to Jerusalem, and then when they went to Jerusalem, uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 7 says that much disputing had taken place, and then we see a process of decision-making, which is a fine example for the governing body today. Now, the reason why they were disputing very likely is because they were expressing their personal opinion. And so one would say, well, I think this, and another would say, I think that. And actually, what they thought as individuals was quite immaterial. The point is, what did Jehovah think? Now, notice what Peter did. Peter wrote here in verse 7 and said, brothers, he didn't say, listen to my opinion. He said, you know that from early days God made the choice among you that through my mouth people of the nation should hear the word of the good news and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter doesn't use his opinion. He says, here's what God did. He sent me to Cornelius. He poured Holy Spirit out upon these people before I ever baptized them. This was God's view of the matter, that they didn't need to be circumcised. And um, then verse 12 says, And the entire multitude became silent and they began to listen to Barnabas and Paul. Now they didn't give their personal opinion on this subject, but they began to relate the many signs and portents that God had done through them among the nations. So again, they were telling, here's what the Holy Spirit did. These people, by exercising faith in the shed blood of Christ Jesus, were changing their lives around bringing them into harmony with God's principles without being circumcised. Well, then James speaks up. And uh, notice, he said, hear me, but he doesn't express his personal opinion. He said, Simeon has related, this is in verse 14, 
Simeon has related thoroughly how God, for the first time, turned his attention to the nations to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, then he quotes from Amos. After these things, I shall return and rebuild the booth of David that has fallen down, and I shall rebuild its ruins and erect it again, in order that those who remain of the men may earnestly seek Jehovah together with people of all nations, people who are called by my name. So notice here the process of making that decision. Now, when they wrote the letter, they could say here in verse 28, the Holy Spirit and we ourselves have favored adding no further burden to you. But they reached this decision under guidance of the Holy Spirit and application of Jehovah's Word, but without angelic revelation. This was certainly a good example for the uh, governing body today in making uh, decisions. Now, the various letters to the congregation were inspired, but we shouldn't think that uh, the apostles or others who wrote these letters or epistles to the congregation just sat down in a, an isolated place and then waited for Jehovah's Spirit to move them as the things to say. First of all, the writers of those letters were men actively engaged in God's congregation. They observed situations that needed attention, and they searched the scriptures. Certain problems arose, for example, because the truth was now spreading out from the Jewish environment to a heathen environment, a culture foreign to Bible thinking, and therefore many uh, human philosophies to deal with and different standards of conduct. And there were many new and different tests of endurance and faithfulness faced by Christians. So the apostles first had to observe the need out there in the field. They had to search God's word, the law, the prophets, the psalms, and they had to study the record of God's dealings with his servants, and they also had to study what Jesus had said about the matter, and then their letters incorporated all of this thinking. And of course, their letters, as they were written and sent out, were also inspired by Holy Spirit. But it did not uh, eliminate the need for them to do research. That's the thing they have in mind. Uh, for example, in about the year 50 of our common era, Paul wrote the letter uh, to the, the letters to the Thessalonians. And there were questions there on the resurrection, the presence of our Lord Jesus. These were causes for division. There was some apostasy there in the congregations in Thessalonica, and others would not work because they thought the end was so near, they didn't have to work with their hands. So counsel needed to be given, and when you read the book of the Thessalonians, the letters, you find that Paul did research and applied Bible principles. A little bit later, he wrote the letter to the Galatians. Again, they needed to be warned against those who tried to subvert their faith and bring them back under the Mosaic law and circumcision. But Paul drew on God's dealings with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, referred to Isaiah 54 about God's woman, to identify this Jerusalem above. So he did research to pull this thing together. About the year 55, he wrote the two letters to the Corinthians. Now here there were a lot of problems. The congregations were in a worldly environment. There were divisions, looking up to men, immorality, divided households, Eating problem of eating meat sold in uh, uh, meat markets which had been offered to idols. Uh, there was uh, misunderstanding about the proper celebration of the Lord's evening meal. 
They had a women's lib movement back then, and they, they needed to have an understanding of a woman's proper place in the congregation and the resurrection. Here, the Apostle Paul quoted from all parts of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. He even referred to the law regarding you must not muzzle the working animal and applied it not to animals but to humans. The apostles also needed to receive proper uh, food for the work that they did. In his support for the doctrine or the teaching of the resurrection, he referred to current history regarding eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Again, uh, we come to the letter to the Romans written about the year uh, 56 of our commentary. This letter to the Romans has been considered the most complete treatise on Christian teaching you can find anywhere. And yet, Paul was responding to problems that arose there in Rome with Christians there. There were problems between the Jews and the non-Jews. How to be declared righteous by law or by faith in Jesus Christ how to deal with the problems living in the midst of an alien world, the relationship to superior authority, the need to welcome all. There were a number of problems treated there in the book of Romans. Well, even in uh, chapter 10 of the book of Romans, Paul backs up his counsel by quoting Isaiah 28.16, Joel 2.32, Isaiah 52.7, 53.1, Psalm 19.4, Deuteronomy 32.21, and Isaiah 65. Again, he didn't just sit down and get an inspiration. He studied, he did research, he saw the fulfillment of these various prophecies here, and then applied them to their uh, witnessing. A few years later, in the year 61, he wrote his letter to the Hebrews. And here again, the Christians in Jerusalem were in a very uh, hostile environment, not even when the Jewish persecution. So Paul refers there to many details of the law and temple sacrifices, shows how Christ Jesus fulfilled these and that he is superior to all things in the law. Uh, it seems very apparent that Paul was the one who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, although it's not specifically mentioned. But he referred to countless historic events, such as chapter 11, historic account of men of faith. Well, again, he didn't just get inspiration. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews did research and applied it. In the year 65, Jude wrote his letter, and on his own initiative, it's true, he had intended to write about the salvation we hold in common. He mentions that. Now, he changes his subject, not necessarily because of angelic revelation, but because of an observation of the need in the congregation. He said that uh, certain men had crept into the congregation uh, and uh, therefore uh, causing people to become immoral and to turn away from the faith. And therefore, instead of writing about the salvation we hold in common, you said, I'm going to write to you about to put up a hard fight for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the Holy One. So this is a rather quick review over the uh, Christian scriptures, but the idea is to show that these were put together by Jehovah's servants of the faithful and the discreet slave back then who did research, who observed conditions, and who had the assistance of Holy Spirit in seeing that they wrote properly. Now the book of Revelation is obviously a divine initiative uh, from Jehovah through Christ Jesus, and it was filled with illustrations and references to events and things from Hebrew scriptures and to future events. 
uh, it was a revelation, but it formed to strengthen Christians back there and help them to meet their situation, and it certainly helped Jehovah's servants to help meet our situations in the last days. So while we don't have today angelic revelation or divine inspiration, we have all of these revelations and inspired accounts in printed form in the Holy Scriptures. And if we put faith in them, which is what the faithful anointed, faithful and discreet slave is doing today and has been doing, if we apply these things in our lives, then we get the benefit of all of these revelations and accounts, divinely inspired accounts, that have been recorded down through the centuries. And they're all recorded for our benefit. Well now, uh, the question comes to the fore, how about Jehovah's directing of his people during the last hundred and uh, twenty years or so, since we uh, do not have divine revelation today. Well, even from the first century down, Jesus foretold there would be a falling away or an apostasy. So, we see this apostasy has taken place after the death of the apostles and false Doctrines came into the picture, such as the Trinity, the immortality of the soul, the eternal torment of the hellfire. Uh, there were other teachings, the a separation of the uh, apostate congregation into a clergy-laity class. They became more a part of the world. They adopted uh, even customs, holidays, and other things like that. But all the way along, through the centuries, there were men of faith endeavoring to be led by God. An example is the Quartodecimum. That is early as the second and third century put up a hard fight to hold fast the Bible's truth, especially concerning the celebrating of the Lord's evening meal just once a year, when other uh, the church leaders were fighting to get away from that and adopt their own view of things. And uh, even as time went on through the centuries and the Protestant Reformation uh, broke away uh, from the Roman Church, uh, they still retained basic uh, heathen doctrine of uh, the apostate church, the Catholic Church. But men were trying to get away from those false doctrines. The Socinians, for example, in Central Europe there, fought against the Trinity and tried to emphasize the need of one God. An outcropping of that was the Unitarians. Although some Unitarians went too far and said that, that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but just a human, many Unitarians, actually, uh, such as uh, Sir Isaac Newton and others, firmly believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but that there was no Trinity and that God was one God. So here were men fighting to, to get Bible truth uh, established. And even uh, uh, in the last century, the last two centuries, Prior to our time, there has been a great effort on the part of many Bible scholars, men who were clergymen in the Church of England or in the Methodist Church or in the Baptist Church of others, to get restored Bible truths. And then the King of Proclaimers book brings out a number of uh, examples of that, the great debate of the various clergymen. William Tyndale, for example, the well-known translator, said this, in putting departed souls in heaven, hell, or purgatory, you destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul proved the resurrection. So here was an outspoken man following God's word. Uh, Martin Luther, 
uh, made the statement that the teaching that the soul was immortal and destined to eternal torment was part of the Pope's, or part of the Pope's dunghill of decretos. He, he wasn't very delicate in his speech, but uh, at least he identified some of these false teachings. Well, later, uh, the followers and the associates of Luther uh, did not stick to this, and in order to compromise so as to not break away from the church, they backed off from the immortality of the soul and hellfire and the trinity, and they got caught anyway because they had to break away from the church, and then they were stuck with these with human uh, philosophies and pagan teachings. But uh, there were others uh, that uh, wrote uh, about a restoration of Bible truth, and uh, men that were fighting hard to uh, to get uh, back to uh, Bible teaching. For example, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul was, was greatly uh, challenged by uh, such as um, Henry Grew, a former Baptist clergyman who became an independent uh, minister in Philadelphia. And in the early 1800s, about 1830, he uh, wrote an expose on the Trinity, and about that same time, uh, he wrote an expose on the immortality of the soul called the intermediate state. And he had all of the good arguments that we later used to prove that the soul was mortal. And this is before Brother Russell was ever born. So here were men trying to be led by God. But during these centuries and during these years, there was no collective preaching work. And therefore, the faithful and discreet slave had not been called together for a collective activity. But the Proclaimers book does record about George Storrs, who uh, first uh, published three letters exposing the immortality of the soul as false, and uh, in 1841, and later he distributed um, his six sermons in over 200,000 copies exposing this teaching. And a Baptist clergyman by the name of Jacob Blaine, uh, Buffalo, published a book called Death Not Life for the Destruction of the Wicked, in 1858, uh, six years after Brother Russell was born, and herein he exposed again the false teaching of the immortality of the soul, and states that there are 200 ministers in the eastern part of the United States that have been expelled for denying the immortality of the soul. So I mention these things only to show that although there was no collective, faithful, and discreet slave uniting Jehovah's servants with food at the proper time during these early centuries and early years. Nevertheless, there was a preparatory work being done that helped people to see what God's Word was uh, teaching. And so it was in the 1870s that Brother Russell and his associates began their search of the Scriptures. They didn't claim divine inspiration, but they did believe that the Holy Scriptures were God's Word. They did believe what Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by means of your truth, your Word is truth. They believed that and knew that you had to accept the entire Bible. Then they also believed and, and endeavored to conform their lives. Brother Russell realized clearly that you just couldn't search God's Word to try to get an understanding of it and then live life any way you wanted. They believe what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says here, um, Trust in Jehovah with all your heart, and do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, take notice of him, and he himself will make your paths straight. 
So they knew that if Jehovah was to lead them, it wasn't a matter of claiming to speak in tongues or claiming to be inspired. It was a matter of acknowledging Jehovah in all their ways, and then he would lead them. In Matthew uh, chapter 24, 42, Jesus commanded his followers, among other things, to keep on the watch pertaining to his return. And so they believed in that, and they, they followed that. And Brother Russell saw also that uh, the return of Christ, or presence, would be invisible. This had also been seen by earlier writers, and there were quite a number uh, that uh, preached uh, the invisible return of Christ, among others. The uh, writings of Sir Isaac Newton published after his death, he preached the, at first an invisible presence of Christ. Joseph Sykes, another a Lutheran clergyman of Philadelphia, and a number of others were preaching an invisible presence. So Brother Russell drew attention to that. And then they searched uh, the scriptures and realized that in searching the scriptures, they also had to cultivate Christian qualities like uh, Peter wrote there in 2 Peter 1, 5, 9 about adding to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and uh, so on. The brothers also realized that if they were to please God, they had to follow Revelation 18, 4, get out of Babylon the Great. Well, now, Babylon the Great, or this harlot that's mentioned in Revelation, was identified earlier by Catholic officials as merely as pagan Rome. But no one in the 19th century needed to get out of pagan Rome. But Luther had identified Babylon the Great of Revelation 17 as the papacy. And clearly shown that it was a part of this world that preached false doctrines and was a dominating, oppressive organization. Well, now there were a number of other men of the Protestant Reformation who observed Luther and observed the Anglicans and observed other religious organizations and saw that they resembled the Catholic Church because one, they had the Church's false doctrines of Trinity and Hellfire. They were a part of this world. They had a clergy-laity division. So they figured that the churches of Christendom were a part of Babylon the Great, and they had to get out of her. Well, Brother Russell saw that and proclaimed that, that nominal, the nominal church was part of Babylon the Great. And it wasn't until 1963 Jehovah's Witnesses saw that all the false religion, including those outside of Christendom, were part of Babylon the Great. But what I was getting at is back there, when they saw that they had to get out of Babylon the Great, that put it on them to leave the churches that they were associated with and come together as a body to the congregation that was being fed, uh, given spiritual food at the proper time and to associate with these. So they did that, and, and the Bible students back then proved to be led by God because they were willing to give up a favorite place in the churches and to give up their friends in the churches and, and to give up that friendship in order to be obedient to God. They were willing to go from house to house later on and then to preach unpopular teachings. Also, during this early period of Brother Russell's time, uh, Charles Darwin came out with the teaching of evolution, and later um, Freud came up with his applied psychology. The doctrine of evolution challenged the creation account, the applied psychology challenged the fall of man in Eden, and then higher criticism by a number of of the German and English and American uh, clergymen uh, tended to challenge the entire basis of the Bible. 
Russell took up all of these challenges in Watchtower magazine. And uh, they made a study of these things and, and exposed the, the evolution theory as false, exposed higher criticism and these teachings that were against the Bible and became supporters or champions of God's word. Uh, then the brothers had to observe a situation that they were in uh, and that those claiming to serve God to prepare them for the Lord's presence. They had to look around them and see the situation in the world and see the way the world was going. These were the things that the Bible students concerned themselves with. They searched the scriptures, they made observations, they, they felt that Christ had returned in 1874 invisibly and that he would make that manifest in 1914 with uh, an open revelation against the world by the Battle of Armageddon. But this was the thrust of their message up until World War I. So, yes, they did not have angelic revelation, but through the study of the scriptures, the Bible students kept closer to God's word than any of the churches of Christendom. Then Brother Russell died in 1916, and uh, Brother Rutherford became president in 1917, and the Lord's people were in a very critical and precarious situation. There was persecution from without, there was division uh, within, and uh, the conclusion of the system of things had begun. God's kingdom had been established in the heavens with Christ Jesus, and uh, this must be preached throughout all the world as a witness unto all nations. Uh, during the end of World War I, the nation set up the League of Nations, which claimed to be the political expression of God's kingdom on the earth. So the faithful slaves with Watchtower Society exposed that as a falsehood and directed the attention of people to God's kingdom. The churches proclaimed it as a political expression of God's kingdom on earth. So again, there was not only a need for the brothers get out of the churches and out of Babylon the Great, but there was also need to get out from them false concepts, celebrations, preacher worship, attitudes and customs of false uh, worship. So uh, these were the things that Watchtower articles dealt with during the years following World War I. The brothers had begun also to have a better understanding of the need for everyone sharing in the preaching work because the message of the kingdom had to be preached. And then between 1918 and 1935, their understanding grew, as we had recently in the Watchtower, that a great crowd was to be gathered out of the nations before Armageddon. Prior to 1918, they thought that, uh, that their preaching was merely to warn the nations of God's judgment and to gather the remaining ones that were going And then they figured Armageddon, and then uh, after Armageddon, in the resurrection, the parable of the sheep and the goats would be fulfilled during that time. But as the Watchtower showed in 1923, Brother Rutherford said that that couldn't be during the millennium reign because uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 shows the Lord's brothers as being uh, hungry and naked and sick and in prison, and none of these appropriately describe their condition during the millennium, but only prior to the millennium at the conclusion of the system of things. So then it was understood from 1923 that the sheep of that parable would take their stand during this time, during the conclusion of the system of things. But no effort was made to gather them. First we got an understanding of the uh, Ezekiel chapter 9 there, 1931, that this class would be sighing and crying over badness in the world, and then 
uh, Jonadab class, the Jonadab, a non-Israelite who went along with Jehu and his fight against false worship, and finally the understanding of the Revelation's great crowd in 1935. So now when they got to saw that clearly, that this great crowd needed to be gathered out, and they also needed to be taught to praise Jehovah and acknowledge salvation to Jehovah and Christ Jesus and wave with palm branches, as well as keeping their garments washed in the blood of the Lamb, it became clear that a great work of gathering these other sheep had to be done, and they had to be taught clearly the standards of Jehovah that would apply to them equally with the anointed. There's no two-step standards. It's one standard of righteousness applied to everyone. And then that they would need to have the assistance of the great crowd in the preaching way. So now the thrust of the Watchtower articles in the literature from the 30s onwards brought about this great expansion in, in the preaching. Well, a lot of other things could be mentioned. Um, the growing uh, persecution of the 30s required many articles from the Book of Judges uh, to strengthen the brothers against persecution and see how Jehovah would uh, guide them. 1942, Brother Rutherford died. Brother Nor became uh, president. And from Brother Nor led into the governing body arrangement that is directing the affairs of Jehovah's people. And that period from 1942 began with World War II, uh, persecution against God's people, mobs, legal cases, and there was also a letdown on the part of some because Armageddon hadn't come. But the society, the faithful and discreet slaves working together, took up the challenge. February 15, 1942 article, the final gathering with Jeremiah 16, alerted Jehovah's people to the need of carrying on this preaching work. And then again, the uh, brothers with Brother Nor and his associates there uh, observed the needs of God's people and started more training for the preaching work. The Theocratic Ministry School introduced into Bethel in uh, February of 1942 and in the congregation in June of 1943. 1942, a school for traveling overseers was uh, set up for, with a two-month course to train brothers to go out and strengthen the congregation. February of 1943, Gilead School arranged to train full-time ministers to go out in the world uh, to many nations as missionaries to carry on the preaching work. And the articles in the Watchtower supported all of this expansion of the preaching work. Other things could be observed. The brothers saw that the, United, the League of Nations did not wind up in a final climax, a climactic fight against the Lamb, but it dropped into oblivion at the beginning uh, of uh, World War II. And at the end of World War II, the League of Nations, which according to Revelation uh, uh, 17, should have gone into a climactic uh, warfare with the Lamb, uh, was dissolved. And it was replaced by the United Nations in 1945. But even before that, the nations were talking about a United Nations, and so a change in understanding on Revelation 17 was brought about. Prior to 1942, we thought that uh, the first expression of this eighth beast that's mentioned in Revelation uh, was with the International Court of Arbitration at The Hague, which was set up at the early part of the century. And then that the League of Nations was the final expression of this. Well, obviously, the League of Nations couldn't have been the final explanation expression, and so in 1942 at the convention, the public talk, peace can at last, it was explained 
that the League of Nations was really the first expression of this beast of Revelation 17, and it went into the abyss as Revelation foretold and came out as the United Nations, and that this would be the organization, the human institution, which would eventually bring down Babylon the Great, all false religions, and would fight against the Lamb and be destroyed. Well, all of it gave Jehovah's servants strength back then in the 40s to expand their preaching work. It was in 1945 the Watchtower took a clearer stand than ever before on the matter of blood transfusion, showing that the receiving of blood into our body uh, was just as wrong through transfusion as it would be by eating it or taking it in in any other way. By 1945 or 46, the availability of much new knowledge of Bible manuscripts and Bible languages and archaeology indicated the advisability of forming a new World Bible Translation Committee so that uh, a Bible translation could be produced, not something that just supported Jehovah's Witnesses' teachings, but a Bible translation that would be totally loyal to the original manuscripts that uh, would... Uh, take into consideration all of the latest knowledge of Bible languages and that would be reproduced in readable uh, English. And so this uh, began to be produced also from 1950 onward and had research there it certainly helped Jehovah's people get a greater understanding as to God's will. And so we can come down to our present day and see that what Jehovah's servants have observed is a growing and increase of an understanding of God's purposes. Proverbs chapter 4 says that the path of the justice as a shining light that gets brighter and brighter as the perfect day is gone. And so we've seen through the years also that our understanding has had to be modified because if we're going to learn new things, that sometimes affects our uh, current uh, or past understanding of various teachings and doctrines. Well, there are some that object to this, as I mentioned before. And they, the question might be asked, well, how is it decided then what material is published in the society's publication? Well, we know that the governing body, made up of anointed brothers, represents the faithful and discreet slave, and it has set up several administrative committees to look after various aspects of Jehovah's people on the earth. And the writing committee has the responsibility for determining what the material is published in the Watchtower and other publications. But these brothers don't sit down in a room and get inspiration or, or dream up something or get a bright idea as to something is needed. Actually, uh, first of all, the brothers observe the conditions and the needs of the brothers in the congregation. Uh, the circuit overseers in their observations, uh, the zone overseers visiting branches send in their observations as to the condition and the needs of God's people. Questions that are sent in are also taken into consideration. And uh, these all give the writing committee insight as to what the true situation spiritually of Jehovah's people is. And then they make their own observations going out in the service, visiting congregations, seeing what's taking place in the world. So all of these things give the writing committee and the brothers working with them in the writing department insight as to what's needed. And these are carefully researched, and material is then prepared and sent out in articles in the Watchtower, other articles in the Wake, and others in publications for our use. Now, this material is not infallible. As I said, it's not inspired, 
but uh, in, in the sense of being divinely inspired and infallible, but nevertheless it's under the guidance of God's written word. The material is prepared and supervised by men who conform their own lives to God's spirit and adjust their thinking to Jehovah's word, and thus we can see that uh, the material that we're getting in the Watchtower and the Awake and the other publications is suitable for our direction. But as I mentioned, some criticize this arrangement, and then they refer to certain changes in understanding or policy, we call it that, um, and they refer to a number of things. That uh, a few years ago, some who have been in this school for a while will remember that <coughs> we used to believe that sacred service was the special way of serving Jehovah in preaching and in full time service. And then at a convention, and in a later Watchtower article, it came out that, well, the Bible says that everything we do, uh, whether in word or in deed, should be to God's honor. So that means that everything that we did with sacred service, whether it was bathing the baby or taking the children for a walk in the park, and, uh, and then after a few years, uh, this matter was tied up again, and it was shown that sacred service, according to the scriptures, really refers not to things that everyone, whether they're dedicated to Jehovah or not, does, but uh, to the specific forms of worship that Jehovah requires of his servants. Well, we had a little modification profile of the treatment of disfellowship persons, and um, the basis for divorce has been sort of tightened up and modified through the years. We had expectations uh, concerning 1975. We had the elder arrangement that was introduced in 1972, uh, in which we had a rotation of elder assignments, but that was abandoned later on for a more permanent assignment. And uh, some say, well, this is is sort of an indication of human leadership. It's not the way Jehovah would do it. These persons argue, well, if Jehovah was leading us, then he would lead us clearly and directly and infallibly forward in everything that we do. So they say this isn't Jehovah's organization. And then some claim Jehovah doesn't have an organization or one chosen people. And that the idea that all anyone needs is a personal relationship with Jehovah. Now, there are those today who claim that the idea of there being one true chosen people of God uh, is no longer a reasonable Christian comment. Some theologians say it's self-centered and egotistic. Uh, even the Jews who held that they were God's chosen people, and of course you have biblical historical proof of that, but some of their theologians say that that concept helped them to endure persecution, and it gives them a hope of having a specially favored place in God's kingdom. But even now, Jewish leaders are questioning that maybe they should back off from that position that they're God's chosen people because it makes them the object of too much persecution in the world today. And other groups like the Mormons, who are pretty well holding to the fact that they, but they're modifying this view that they are God's only chosen people. The Adventists are moving away from it. And so a number of other groups are also moving away from this concept. But Jehovah's Witnesses will not abandon the claim that there is one true chosen people of God on the earth today, nor their claim that they are that people serving Jehovah to the best of their ability. For example, Jesus taught that his disciples should be like in him, united like branches in a stock. 
and that they would be identified, as he said in John 13:35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, in that as I have loved you, you have loved one for another. So he did say there would be those who would know who his disciples were. In 2 Corinthians 6:16, Paul says to Christians, you are God's people. Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 says to the Christian congregation that they are God's chosen people, chosen for a special purpose. And John says in 1 John 5, we know that we originate with God, but the whole world is lying in the power of the wicked one. So Jehovah's Witnesses continue to hold to this Bible view that God has a chosen people. We do so not in a self-centered way, nor... Uh, because we want to have a favored position in God's kingdom over others, but because we are aware of the responsibility and privilege it is to bear witness to Jehovah's name. But now, what about this argument that if we were led by Jehovah, that we would be led as infallibly forward today, just like God led the nation of Israel by the hand of Moses, or with a clear understanding of the truth? Well, we might take just a quick look at that question. Jehovah does not tell his servants every detail as to what they should do. He didn't tell Abraham every detail as to what he should do. As a matter of fact, Abraham did not realize how he was going to have offspring for a number of decades. So Jehovah didn't tell him every detail, but gave him the promise. What Jehovah does is teach principles and then to observe how his servants react. And he also teaches by the way he deals with his people. He does not force his servants by giving them all sorts of details, but allows room for the heart to respond and to react to his principles. For example, Jehovah allowed the first three plagues to come upon Egypt, also to come upon his servants. He didn't explain why, but he allowed it. And then from the fourth one, he made a distinction to make it very clear to everyone now, he could make that distinction. He allowed Israel, after they came across the Red Sea into the Sinai Peninsula, to wander three days without water. They got very thirsty, and then when they found water, it was too bitter to drink. They began to murmur against Jehovah, showing what was in their hearts. Then... Uh, he allowed Moses to show them how to make that water sweet and drinkable. You know, Jehovah could have led them to that water the first day. He could have made it sweet before they started drinking it. So, what we observe from that is that Jehovah allows certain things and then lets, shows up within our hearts and gives us a chance to respond to his uh, direction. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 15, 22, it says, regarding making that water sweet, there, Jehovah established a case for judgment, and there he put them to the test. Well, the Israelites began to murmur against Moses, not Jehovah, but they did say, if only we'd died in Egypt, we'd been better off. They thought more of meat and cucumbers and watermelons than they did of the privilege of bearing Jehovah's name. So Jehovah sent them manna. Then he told them not to keep it overnight, but some tried to do that. And then he told them not to gather on the Sabbath with someone out looking for it. So again, they showed up what was in their heart. So Jehovah gave them commandments and put them to the test. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses makes it very clear that Jehovah led them through the wilderness and fed the manna to show them that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of Jehovah. Jehovah could have just told them that. 
for inventive experiences for 40 years. So looking back, we see how Jehovah did a number of things so that his people would be able to demonstrate what was in their hearts. Uh, remember when they sent the, the 12 spies in to search out the land? Well, the, the uh, 10 spies gave a negative report. The two spies, Joshua and Caleb, gave a faithful report. And yet, when the judgment was made that the nation had to wander 40 years, Joshua and Caleb went along without complaint and took part of that. And, and so it is that Jehovah has allowed certain things. Later on, uh, they uh, were under the judges, and then the people asked for a king so they could be just like other people. And uh, Jehovah allowed for a king, although he warned them against it and told them they were going to feel the consequences, which they did. So we see how Jehovah allowed things. Jehovah's servants made cert took certain freedoms on themselves. And Moses had to bear the consequences of his own rash action, and he couldn't come into the promised land. David sinned by taking a census, and the entire nation had to suffer. So what we're trying to do is, is not to create confusion on this matter, but to see that Jehovah has allowed certain things, he directs certain things to observe how his servants respond. Uh, they were taken into captivity and their temple destroyed. Seventy years later, they were restored to the promised land. They started rebuilding the temple, and then out of fear of the surrounding nations, they stopped building the temple for 16 years. During this period, though, they were developing their own fields and their flocks and building their own houses. But things weren't prospering. So Jehovah said to them, set your heart upon your ways, or take note of how things are going with you, and then act accordingly. Later on, the Christian congregation had also been led in the same manner. They had Holy Spirit. They, uh, Jesus had said that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth, and yet they had certain problems. And so their hearts were tested. There was division among them. There the issue of the resurrection came up, the issue of circumcision. Many things put the hearts of those first Christians to the test. And Jehovah has also allowed various tests for his people today. Now, one of the principles that uh, it's been a hard one for many who have become Jehovah's Witnesses is the teaching that all Christians should share in the preaching work. It's unique with Jehovah's Witnesses. There, other churches do a little witnessing, but with Jehovah's Witnesses, it's believe that everyone needs to have a share in preaching Jehovah's name and kingdom. And we have the scripture that uh, we should always offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Uh, all who call on the name of Jehovah will be saved. With the heart we believe for righteousness, but with the mouth we make declaration for salvation. So this has been a test for Jehovah's people. Also that they should recognize Jehovah's organization. Early Christian teaching shows that the Christians were united as a body. When Cornelius wanted to worship Jehovah, Jehovah told him, get together with Peter, uh, with the visible organization. And uh, they were told that they had to put up with one another and to freely forgive one another. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Be obedient to those taking the lead among you. So again, these scriptures applying to the visible organization. The Christians also needed to endure. It isn't new. We're not going to get the expectation of our faith immediately. But when they served Jehovah for many years, so endurance mentioned many times in the scriptures. Jesus said, that those that endure to the end will be saved. And uh, James wrote 
say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with various trials, knowing that, as he mentioned here, this test of your faith works out endurance. So endurance has been a very important thing for Jehovah's service. And yet, a number, because they've come into the truth and their expectations of their early salvation and the coming into the new world were very great, when they didn't get those expectations fulfilled right away, then uh, they got discouraged and decided to go back to the world to get something out of what they could get there. Another test was the matter of holiness, maintaining holy conduct, moral uprightness and cleanness. John wrote very clearly in his first letter that uh, the children of God and the children of the devil are identified by this, that those who do righteousness are the children of God, and those who do unrighteousness are not. So all of these things should separate out uh, Jehovah's people. Now why is it then that Jehovah perhaps allowed for a change in understanding of things for a while? Well, again, if the brothers are imperfect, even those of the faithfully street slave and the governing body, for example, this matter of sacred service that came up some years ago caused a little confusion among Jehovah's servants. The scripture that was used, and sincerely enough, was that in everything you do, do it to God's honor, led the brothers for a time to believe that everything a person in the household did was sacred service. Well, now then, it, it did expose what was in the heart, because if a person had a choice of going out of the unpopular preaching from house to house or street work, or taking his children for a walk in the park, equal forms of sacred service, what do you think he would choose? Uh, well, at least it would show up what was in the heart, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, uh, so this had its effect. If uh, anyone serving God and carrying on any form of sacred service, including scrubbing the back porch, was going to get into the new world of righteousness, why be a pioneer? Why put forth all that effort? So this showed us what was in heart. And uh, so as uh, time went on, the pioneer work dropped, the number of hours dropped, the increases in Jehovah's organization dropped, and so the governing body of the faithful and discreet slaves followed Jehovah's words of Hag Haggai, pay attention to how things are going. Set your heart upon the way. They observed that, they searched the scriptures, they found that there had been an incorrect application of this term, sacred service, and the matter was corrected. And so, uh, the same thing could be said of many other things, that we have to search God's word, observe its application, observe the consequences, and then act accordingly. The same thing is true with the expectations regarding 1975. It, it wasn't wrong for the slave class to make us aware of the possibility of these uh, prophetic elements of the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year having a fulfillment uh, with the thousand-year reign following 6,000 years of human history. But of course the expectation got to be so great that uh, many then got to think of their own early salvation as more important than the vindication of Jehovah's name, and actually more important than the gathering of a lot of other people. And so Jehovah allowed this, and uh, then, in time, it became very clear to the faithful slave and the governing body, uh, 
that uh, more caution needs to be exercised in situations of that type. And Jehovah's people have endeavored to learn from that and not to try to set a day and an hour for Jehovah's intervention, but certainly to wait upon him to act. So it's true, some people have criticized these things that have happened to Jehovah's people and Jehovah's organization, but uh, we can see that Jehovah has richly blessed his people because they are the ones that have his name. And we see the proof that Jehovah is directing his people today in the fruitage. For example, the Worldwide Brotherhood. There's only one true international brotherhood today. People of all nations, of all races, of all classes, uh, united together in worshiping Jehovah. Any other effort to show an international religious group is only superficial. There's one true united brotherhood of Christians worshiping Jehovah. Again, the fact that the anointed remnant and the whole organization today working with the faithful and discreet slave uphold Jehovah's name. Not only the, the name, the four Hebrew letters, the identity of the name Jehovah, or its pronunciation, which we don't know, but what the name stands for, the greatest person in the universe, and all of its qualities of holiness and uprightness and righteousness. So the anointed remnant today shows that they have been led by God because of their, or by reason of their loyalty to Jehovah's name, their loyalty to his word. Jehovah's Witnesses today are the greatest champions that the Bible is God's word. Now there's other churches that render a certain amount of lip service to the Bible and say, we accept the Bible as God's word, but they don't apply it in their lives. And then any time a situation comes up in which the Bible disagrees with some concept that they want to keep, they stick to their favorite teachings, or they'll even take part in war, killing one another, even though Jesus' words are very clear on that matter. So when we say Jehovah's people alone today champion the Bible as no one else does, it's because we apply in our lives the teachings of the Bible, even though it may require us to break away from some favorite thing that we have been doing or want to do or some favorite association. So we apply God's word in our lives. The zeal in preaching the kingdom, the maintaining of holiness, the high moral standards are some things. Now, a good many other religious organizations have tried to break away from false churches in the last two centuries and get back to primitive Christianity. But they usually wound up following men. The proclaimers book makes that very clear. That what happens is these groups usually either follow personalities or certain favorite teachings and refuse to move away from those favorite teachings, even though a clear explanation from God's word would indicate that they should do that. And that's what's happened in, in a number of cases. An example could be the Campbellites, who moved from England to the United States sometime before the days of Brother Russell, although uh, uh, these uh, two, the father and son of the Campbells and their associates were alive during Brother Russell's early days. And they were really trying to get back to early Bible Christianity. Although they did get stuck on the immortality of the soul, but in many other ways they tried to keep separate from the world. And uh, so for some time they, they kept separate from the world. Uh, they eventually uh, changed their name from Campbellite to the Christian Church and they united with another body called the Church of Christ. But again, without sticking closely to the Bible, you can get into all sorts of trouble. It's the last 
few years as the Christian Church united with the Church of Christ met, and its delegates there were to elect the person who was to be president of the organization. And uh, the only candidate that had been put forth was one who favored ordaining homosexuals as ministers. Now, this candidate didn't get elected, but he got very nearly 50% of the vote. Now, this shows what could happen to an organization or a group of men who start out sincerely, but who don't stick to the Bible. The same could be said of a lot of others. Many of the Advent groups of the last century were sincerely awaiting the Lord's return. But when their expectations were not fulfilled, then they got off on some tangent, or they followed some man, and they got stuck where they were. The, the uh, Advent Christian Church, which uh, a number of, of associates of that became associates of Brother Russell, they were very sincere in the beginning. But today, that group probably consists of uh, less than 10,000 people. They're not doing any preaching. They're not awake to the prophecies that are being fulfilled. So they don't have the evidence that they are led by God. And we could mention a great many others, but time uh, doesn't allow it. But we see Jehovah's Witnesses today have evidence that they're led by God. Also, they seek first the kingdom, not only by submitting themselves to the kingdom's ruling principles, but by zealously preaching the good news of the kingdom. And uh, there are so many other scriptures uh, that we have used this evening and that Jehovah's Witnesses use uh, in our activity that show that we are led by God. So if we look around, it's not self-centered, it's not conceited, it's not egotistical to say we can't say we are led by God. We don't have angelic revelation, we don't have infallible divine inspiration from Jehovah, but we have all of these things infallibly recorded for our benefit, and if we apply them in our lives, which Jehovah's people do and are taught to do, then we do have God's leading. So even as Jehovah has led his people through the ages past and in recent decades, so we can have confidence that he will continue to lead the faithful and discreet slave and its governing body, because the faithful slave and the governing body are zealously devoted to sticking to God's word, never giving in to human philosophy, to human teaching, but sticking to God's word as uh, the inspired scriptures and following it in our lives. So yes, we can say we're led by God, though we don't have angelic revelation, and uh, the fact that we have to adjust our teaching or adjust our thinking from time to time is not an evidence of human direction, but an evidence that God is leading his people uh, infallibly forward to do his will according to their ability to understanding, uh, understand his will and according to the need at the particular time. So we can all be grateful for Jehovah's leading through his organization, and we can say, yes, we are led by God.